Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 29th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The fourth wave of coronavirus has swept the country, propelling us backwards with COVID once again, causing severe illness, hospitalisation and death. The fear this week is that the emergence of the new variant in the southern region of Africa could mean that the worst has yet to come. As you'll know, the situation has grown more serious in recent days. Eamon Ryan gave his leader's speech to the Green Party's National Convention online. COVID cancelled a meeting of the members as planned, making it a virtual event because of the growing number of new cases and... The emergence of a new variant of concern. Though worrying, I want to reassure you that we will do everything necessary to stop, stop the spread of this new strain. I know the TV news bulletins might be alarming, but please remember that there are several reasons to remain hopeful. While the new variant may prove to be more contagious, our best scientists expect that the vaccines will still provide us with protection. The new variant B11529 has been classified as a variant of concern by the World Health Organization and is now known as Omicron. So Omicron uh, B11529 is named as a variant of concern because it has some concerning properties. Um, This variant has a large number of mutations, and some of these mutations have some worrying characteristics. Right now, there are many studies that are underway. There's a lot of work that is ongoing in South Africa and in other countries to better characterize the variant itself in terms of transmissibility, in terms of severity, and any impact on our countermeasures like the use of diagnostics, therapeutics, or vaccines. Dr. Maria von Kerkhoff with some reason for hope on one hand, but it's just too early to say the reality of it is, it seems, is that there just isn't enough known about this variant. So far, there's little information, but those studies are underway. So we need researchers to have the time to carry those out. And WHO will inform the public um, and our partners and our member states as soon as we have more information. And amidst all of uh, this uncertainty, the World Health Organization says there has to be a re-emphasized focus on public health measures. These proven public health measures have never been more important. 
distancing, wearing of a mask, making sure that it's over your nose and mouth with clean hands, um, making sure you avoid crowded spaces, be in rooms where there's good ventilation, and when it's your turn, get vaccinated. Much of that advice applies now to young children with antigen testing being rolled out in primary schools where children from third class up will be asked to wear face masks. While making sure we keep our schools and colleges open, Young people have lost so much from the isolation of the last 18 months. We know that in the end we'll have to learn. And Simon Ryan uh, again uh, from that address he gave to the Green Party over the weekend. He, together with uh, the other two government leaders, Leo Radker and Michal Martin, will be meeting with Neffet to map out uh, the next steps uh, today. Tanya Ward is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Children's Rights Alliance. And a very good morning to you, Tanya, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. I think you have some concerns uh, about some children wearing face masks, some of the time at least, uh, but I, I would be right or would I be right in asking if your overriding concern is keeping the schools open? Well, absolutely. Uh, To to be honest, I'm seeing uh, nearly nearly on a weekly basis now more evidence and research coming through showing the impact of the school closures. I suppose, remember, the World Health Organization noted that Ireland had the longest school closures of primary school in the world. And that has had an enormous effect on children and young people. Um, I spoke in an event last week with the Minister for Children and the European Commission talked about Ireland having the poorest mental health and emotional well-being in the European Union for children and young people based on their studies. So consistently we're seeing if you close schools, it has a massive and detrimental effect on all children and young people, but particularly on the most vulnerable children with disabilities, children living in poverty, um, children where uh, there might be domestic violence taking place, where the families are struggling. That's what we know if we close our schools. Okay. What are are your thoughts on the steps that are being taken in relation to children? In the longer term, we're talking about vaccination uh, from today. We're looking at the introduction of antigen tests uh, in some circumstances. And there's a bit of confusion about that and some questions around how that's been done as well. And if we should go back to full tracker and tracing. Uh, And then, of course, there's this issue of face masks. Uh, Is it worth having face masks if it means that that will result in keeping the schools open? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the World Health Organization has said when it comes to face masks, you know, they, they should, when, when you're looking at younger children, they should really only be used in circumstances where there, there's a health emergency. And I suppose the figures are quite high among primary school children at, at the moment. And there's no doubt about it. It's going to be much more difficult for young children to wear face masks than, than older children, young people and adults. That, that That's just a, a certainty. Um, We would be concerned, I suppose, about the rollout, particularly for children where it's going to impede their learning or perhaps they have a disability or a health condition. The World Health Organization essentially says that you should really do it on a case-by-case basis and assess each child when it comes to wearing the face mask. And we're just hoping that there's very clear guidance for, for schools, for principals about how to do that because you can imagine situations emerging where there is conflict arising between parents and schools and yeah. 
children and young people and, and we have to avoid that and I think you have to have a very flexible approach when it comes to wearing face masks for, for young children as well. Some of them will find it more difficult than, than other children uh, to wear a face mask. That's yeah. just the, the reality of it. Um, and at the same time, I suppose you don't want to put teachers and principals in difficult situations either when it comes to this. So I think as much... But it's an advisory at the moment, isn't it, rather than it being mandatory? Well, we're waiting. The government has to make the recommendations, right? So that's, we're, wait, we're waiting for that cabinet meeting to take place. But the Taoiseach kind of suggested over the weekend that the advice was going to be coming when it, when, when it comes to face masks. Um, when face masks were introduced for second level students, our information helpline did get a number of calls from young people themselves and from uh, parents. And there were some issues with the rollout. So maybe a school didn't accept a GP note uh, to say the child had a health condition that they they, they, sh- they shouldn't have to wear a face mask. Maybe the GP wouldn't give them the letter right for the mm. face mask. So a few of those things did happen in the rollout at, at second level. So it's something we are watching very closely when it comes to primary school children. Mm. But it, there has to be a common sense approach. If you can't wear a face mask, you can't wear a face mask, whether that's for medical reasons uh, or because uh, of uh, the child themselves and uh, how difficult they find it to be. That's right. And, and look, face masks do impede learning for, for younger children, mm. particularly around, you know, they need facial recognition, uh, particularly for acquiring language. There's, there's no doubt about it. They, they, they do impede on, on children's learning. Now, I, the recommendation from NEFID is this is for, they're recommending it for a short term period up mm. until the month of February. So um, it, it, it is for a restricted period. So I think that will be very important. I'll, I'll be focused on what the government are recommending for how long these face masks are going to be used in, in the Irish context. Um, because obviously if they're being introduced permanently across the board, obviously we'd have a, a, big, a big problem with that. But based on NEFA's advice, it seems to be it's going to be a short period of time. Mm. And it seems to be that it'll be on an advisory basis that uh, children won't uh, be refused education because uh, they won't or can't wear masks as uh, things it might be uh, and that there'll be times that they will uh, be asked to wear them uh, and uh, we'll all know that it won't be possible all of the time and there'll be other times uh, when maybe they're out in the playground uh, that they'll be allowed not to wear them. That's right. And, and you might find situations where a child is able to wear a mask for two or three hours a day, but mm. for the rest of the day, they're, they're just not able for it. And I think this comes down to that, just that individual cases. I mean, mm. children and young people have to play their part in the pandemic as well. And they have done. They've worked really hard to try and make everyone safe and uh, stop the spread of the virus. So children and young people do have to play a part yeah. at the same time we have to be really flexible when it comes to young children Mm. in 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 this pandemic. If we are flexible and if we use some common sense uh, and uh, we look on children uh, as children and allow uh, for some uh, of the rules to be bent a little bit, but we end up knowing that uh, some of the children are wearing masks some of the time uh, and if the feeling is that that will go some way to help uh, stopping the spread of this disease, that won't be a bad thing. That's right. And I suppose, you know, some, some children will have no difficulty wearing the mask and it won't impede their learning or they could have a health condition and they'll have no difficulty wearing a mask. So you're, you're, you're going to see ch- some children being able to um, being able to wear a mask some parts of the day. What I'm hoping is, is that vaccination for young children comes in soon. And mm. I, I'm really encouraged by what's coming down in terms of initial studies that there seems to be no um, 
there's no no negative impacts from from vaccination of of young children. Now I know morally there's a big question about vaccinating children um, when other people in other countries uh, really should be get being vaccinated first. But I suppose the thing that I'm focusing on is their education, and mm. if vaccination children means that there's less interference with their education and also with their socialisation. Like I, I think people took it hard hearing that there's going to be a recommendation to restrict your movement as a child over the next two weeks. You know, you can't do play dates, you can't go to pantos, mm. all of those things because they did miss out on that social interaction for such a long period of time. And so the other side with some of us are thinking, even in my own family, I'm thinking I can go to the pub, but my kids can't go and hang out with each other in each other's houses. So I think I think people find that hard to stomach um, when it comes to children and young people. So I hope there's a bit of clarity on that recommendation. I understand this because they're concerned at the high numbers among children and young people. And, and they say how it spreads among children and young people for the most part seems to be when they're in people's households, you know, the windows aren't open, they're not playing outdoors, or if they're going to music venues or, or shows and things like that, that's how it seems to be, be spreading at the moment and, mm. and that's why that recommendation has come in. But I am hoping now, you know, there is, a, there is a kind of a step back and looking at the impact it's having on children and young people and we keep this focus that children and young people you know, the, to be fair to the government, for the most part, they have privileged their interactions with each other and noted that it's having an enormous effect. I think we need to keep that focus as well, that, you know, if, yeah. if we have to control people's contacts, that when it comes to children and young people, they're given more space for each other because the, the lost learning, you know, that impacts lots of children from not having those interactions at the point in time where they need to have it, some children will catch up but we know some other children won't, and particularly children mm. with disabilities are the ones they don't catch up when they, lo- when they lose all those contacts. What do you think they of the other preventative measures, uh, Tanya? Uh, I mean, uh, CO2 filter or CO2 monitors are for some classrooms, but not for all. Uh, no HEPA filters, uh, and if uh, there is a problem, uh, or if you don't have uh, the monitors, open the windows. Uh, and then there's uh, the antigen tests. If a child has symptoms, uh, they'll get uh, free antigen tests, uh, and uh, then or the pod will that, that uh, and if someone else in the pod gets it then the whole class will get them uh, are we taking the right approach in terms of, uh, of trying uh, to arrest uh, the transmission of uh, the virus in classrooms yeah I mean to be honest the, the schools have done an amazing job in controlling the spread of the virus in their schools and you can see that through the, the public health data you know they've been man- they managed to shut down in, in many cases uh, situations where the virus is, is spreading in schools but I suppose you are hearing across the board some concerns that, you know, some of these mitigation measures aren't being rolled out in the same way across the board. I mean, the CO2 monitors, I know I know that, that, that there's huge issues around whether they work or don't work. And I know some of the data coming through is saying that opening windows is a far better measure to protect children in school spaces than, than a CO2 monitor, that they're kind of a measure mm. of last resort in, in some scenarios. But to be honest, you know, these things aren't as expensive um, as closing schools and the impacts on us up down, the, down the road. So I think if schools need any kind of measures to keep a school safe or to manage the risk, I think we just need to make sure that they're, they're, they're ready and available. I know a lot of schools found when they try to order 
some of these measures. They just weren't available then. There was a massive draw on them yeah. and the market just didn't have them available. I know that's, that's hugely disappointing because, you know, boards of management principal teachers are putting huge amounts of errors into managing the, the school system. And obviously it's, it's very difficult for schools when their staff are out sick as well, you know, having to reduce you know, their capacity, having to merge classes or shut down classes overall. I mean, it's just a str- it's stressful for teachers, to be honest. It's stressful for yeah. principals. They've been at this a-, a very long period of time. But to be honest, the fact that they're keeping the schools open is really, really significant because the data is telling us when we close the schools, the impact is far worse than when we, open, than we keep them uh, open. Okay, we leave it there. Tanya, thank you as always for joining us uh, this morning. Tanya Ward is uh, the Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's speak uh, to Sinn Féin's uh, spokesperson on transport, uh, Darren O'Rourke, who's a TD for me. East. Uh, a very good morning to you and thanks uh, as always for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, this new variant uh, has been identified in uh, the southern region of Africa, but is there any point to travel bans? Uh, as have already been implemented or indeed of us going back to the idea of hotel quarantine. Is the likelihood not already that this variant is here in this country and if it's not here yet, it will soon be here? I think that is a a real possibility, Michael. Um, I think we heard from from Killian de Gascon in the recent hours or days in in, in relation to that, confirming that to be the case. We heard this morning that there are six identified cases in Scotland. Um, We know that over the the weekend there are identified cases in Britain and and across Europe. Um, And I think even over the weekend period, when we initially heard of this and some of the indications and it you know it is a, a variant of concern and the world health organization and others have have concerns in relation to it because of the the types of mutations and questions in relation to transmissibility in relation to the severity of disease in relation to the effectiveness of vaccines but then we heard from communities and scientists and doctors in South Africa and elsewhere who have experience of the the vaccine uh, of the the virus in yeah. the, the first instance, and there may be indications that you know it it, it isn't uh, any more severe, and there are questions that need to be answered in relation to that. But the other thing we heard from them and from the World Health Organization was that travel bans uh, are a very crude tool, and actually there is a, a an incentive for scientists and doctors to withhold information um, if, if that's the approach that's going to be taken by, by Western governments. And I think that's something that that is important for us to hear um, because we need to recognise that the root cause of this, the virus is doing exactly what the virus does. It, it mutates and... Well, we look at all the variants that we've had so far. I mean, is there any variant that hasn't turned up in any corner of the world? Exactly, and, and that's the, the, the nature of our interconnected world. And, and at the root of it all, uh, Michael, is the, the argument that nobody is safe until everybody is safe. And mm. I think that's the piece that we have really failed to get right. And, and that goes back to that idea of making sure that there's vaccines for people where there aren't vaccines. Uh, and this has been the message for a very long period of time that you might... Uh, 
end up regretting uh, putting all um, of uh, your eggs in one basket because uh, of your approach to vaccination and if you try to get all of your population here vaccinated uh, it'll mutate somewhere else and then come in and your vaccines won't work. Absolutely and, and the, the message, the, the real call from the World Health Organization and for, from experts in public health it hasn't been to lock down and increase restrictions and to isolate South Africa or the continent of Africa or any other continent. It has been to accelerate the vaccination rollout and to ensure mitigation plans are in place to, to support health services. So it's about health service capacity. It's about doing the, the A, Bs and Cs that we know um, that you've heard from, from Maria von Kirchhoff uh, in terms of mask wearing, social distancing, good hand uh, hygiene. Um, but principally, the acceleration of the vaccine rollout to all corners of, of, of the, the, the globe. And we haven't done that. And we've, we've seen it, Michael, and I've raised it on your own show, mm. as, as have others, but also in the doll with, with, with Leo Varadkar. I distinctly remember him saying, oh, no, supply isn't the issue. Um, there, are, there are other issues. Supply is the issue. And supply in the, those corners of the world that have a tiny percentage of the population. On a global basis, yes, perhaps, uh, but it's hardly Leo Bradker's fault, is it? Uh, I mean, uh, we are talking about uh, the world and world leaders coming together on this and uh, issues such as intellectual property rights, the patents on these vaccines uh, and so on being waived, as well as uh, a will uh, and a means of funding the ramping up of production of the vaccines. No, but uh, to be clear, Michael, it's it's Western powers, including Irish uh, uh, and Leo Varadkar and his his uh, colleagues, um, that have protected the regime that's in place there. That has that have protected the, the German authorities, the European Union, um, have been the ones at the very forefront of the resistance to uh, the relaxation of the intellectual property rights protection. So, so that's why we don't have the TRIPS waiver, as it's known, activated. That's why we don't have billions of, of vaccine doses being produced in, in India, which they've put their hands up. Uh, that's why we don't have mm. the level of vaccine rollout that we could potentially have. It's because we're protecting the profits. There's The, the, the companies that, that make these vaccines are making a thousand euro profit every second. You know, that's the, the, the type of, of scale of profit that's been made. We know that there are vaccine doses going to waste in the Western world, in Europe, uh, in the United States. I know, States. but you have to be realistic at the same time. If Joe Biden is calling for uh, intellectual property rights uh, to be waived, uh, it's hardly Leo Radker's fault. No, but... No, the, no, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, you have, you have to be realistic, but uh, I mean, the point remains, uh, and uh, it's a valid point, but I don't think it's Leo Radker's fault as such. No, no, but Leo Radker, I, I, I suppose the reason I'm making that point is because I personally raised it with Leo Radker in the doll, and he has a responsibility in terms of in terms of trade. Uh, so he's a responsible minister. He sits at a, a very high level at a European uh, uh, European mm. level as well. So, 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 like, I, okay. I recognise and appreciate that that Ireland isn't the the, the 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 powerful force within within Europe, the, the likes of France and Germany and, and others, but. We know where the resistance is, and, and, and Ireland has a voice at that table. So when I ask Leo Varadkar, why aren't we moving on the TRIPS waiver, and he says, um, because supply isn't the issue, that's not the answer I want to hear. What I want to hear is that Ireland is championing a TRIPS waiver. We're doing everything that we can to influence Germany, to influence France and others who are resisting it. That's not what's happening. So uh, okay. Ireland and Leo Varadkar and our government are becoming... Um, 
you know, they're, they're making excuses for, for their European counterparts, which, I, which isn't the, the role that I want the Irish government to play. And in fairness, you said it, Michael, Joe Biden and the US administration, uh, you know, the, uh, the ones you might least expect, expect to be in support of a TRIPS waiver are actually advocating for that position. So, so I think it's something that, that can happen, that should happen, that should have happened a long time before now. And in addition to that, the other operational measures to ensure the widespread vaccine rollout across the, the, the global south needs to happen as soon as is possible immediately, Michael. OK, so what do you want to hear uh, from Leo Vradker today uh, when he, along with Michal Martin and Eamon Ryan, meet with Nefer? They look at some of uh, these issues, whether it's hotel quarantine or uh, movement in or out of uh, the country or some of these other issues related to travel. Yeah, well, uh, f- first of all, um, I, I think it's important that there is a uh, there's clarity in relation to the, the, the current state of affairs. I think you know we we have a situation where um, you know I, I think we need to see you know pre-departure, post-arrival testing. We need to uh, an outline of how uh, Irish people in, in these countries are going to be repatriated. There are question marks. Uh, at this point in time in terms of different sports groups. Okay. I think we, we and need... And if you test positive, what then? Yeah, well, we see that the, the, the Munster rugby team are, are affected. Mm. Uh, but there's been a positive test uh, over in, in South Africa and they're, they're trying to figure that out, but it, it, it means a, a quarantine. Um, I think, you know, it, it, the indications are, and it remains to be seen, um, that there will be a, a, a rec- an additional requirement for for pre departure and post arrival testing and quarantine at home. Now, quarantine at home will have to be implemented far better than it was before, and there'll have to be greater oversight. That was the indications that we heard from from Aim and Ryan at the weekend. That remains to be seen. I think. You know, Qu- quarantine, Qu- quarantine at home. Uh, if you have a negative PCR. If you, have an, if you have a negative PCR, so everybody should be, anyone who's arriving should be arriving with a, a negative uh, PCR mm. uh, pre-departure from, from these areas of, of, of concern. And then uh, subsequent to arrival, uh, there should be uh, a post-arrival um, uh, post-arrival um, testing as well, yeah. exactly, mm. and it should be. Uh, so, th- so the indication is that it will be quarantine at home for a period until you have a a, a negative PCR test. But that should be uh, supervised if it if it's to be meaningful in any way. Um, the, the question then about around mandatory hotel quarantine. I think we're in a different space based on mm. on everything we've just said, Michael. Um, but. If, if the public health advice indicates that it is essential or necessary, uh, that's something that, that would have to be considered. But I, I think my sense is but that... But it doesn't work. I mean, we've learned that already, haven't we? That, well, well, and... Look, I mean, it, hotel I, quarantine was in place to try and keep Delta out. Now look at Delta. Yeah, I, I don't know. That that wasn't my uh, my sense of it, Michael. Uh, my sense was that it, hotel quarantine was here to protect the vaccine rollout and to to create some, so, you know, to buy some time essentially earlier on when the government didn't introduce it to get some understanding of the of the virus. But I think we're in a different place. We mm. have vaccines now. We we have you know the advice from the World Health Organization. Um, we should have effective tools in terms of of vaccination, but also PCR testing and, and monitoring. So, so that can help. Um, uh, and I think all of these things have to be kept kept under constant monitor. But importantly, what I need to hear from from Leah Radcliffe and the and three party leaders is 
what they're going to do in terms of increasing capacity of our of our hospitals here, what they're going to do in terms of PCR testing, contact tracing, antigen testing, HEPA filters for schools, the increased and improved uh, wearing of, of FFP2 masks, mm. the booster campaign. That's what we need to do. What about the COVID certs? The, the COVID certs are also, you know, the... the do you want them expanded? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know, Michael, that, that, that there is a, a, a case for that. I think I, the first instance, Michael, the list I, would, I, I listed out there mm. in terms of HEPA filters, in terms of mm. contact mm. tracing, PCR testing, improvement in our, our, um, our hospital capacity, I think if the government got that right, um, it, it would provide for a greater environment for, for, for people to be able to go about their business and to sustain the Would it not help, though, if you needed a COVID cert to go into a hairdresser? Yeah, I, I think so. So would, I think to be to be honest, Michael, and I think you know the, the COVID certs they they have been helpful in terms of encouraging people mm. to um, to get vaccinated and also to to obviously to protect people. Um, but they are very divisive, um, and like we're we're at a point now where we well, have huge. They're they're, huge they're not that divisive. There's a small group of people uh, who are making a big fuss about it, uh, and you'd have to assume. Uh, that they're the very same people who pose a threat to others, not just because of the fact that they're not vaccinated, that there's a higher risk of them getting the disease, that there's a higher risk of them passing on the disease, but also because there's a reckless nature to these people. I don't know if you uh, saw any of uh, the scenes uh, from uh, that demonstration that took place in Dublin over the weekend and the amount of people walking along on top of each other without wearing masks. They're the kind of people who won't wear masks, let alone keep away from each other and will tell you all sorts of nonsense. No, I, 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 I hear exactly that, Michael. But I, the, the couple of things I would say in relation to it. First of all, there has been a huge vaccine uptake. A number of the measures mm. that I outlined there, I think, the, to, to, in, in my opinion, the, the, the vaccine, the, the COVID certs uh, have been successfully implemented, but they, they are a divisive feature. And actually, the argument in relation to them also, often plays into the hand of the the, the, the kind of victim complex that, that uh, many talking to themselves uh, I mean uh, and as uh, things stand uh, there's fewer and fewer of them more and more people are getting vaccinated every day thousands of people are getting uh, their first dose of vaccine uh, every single day it seems at this yeah. stage so, so, so I would say Michael so, so the vaccine search then um, are are, are a source of, of controversy and contention and, and plays into that thing of vaccine discrimination. And actually, I think our focus needs to be on the, the positive elements that government actions, that government and individuals can take and in terms of improving our response. So HEPA filters, improving hospital capacity, improving mask wearing um, and, and all of those other measures that, okay. that are there ready to be done um, that, that I think can really make a difference in terms of, of getting us through this, this winter period. Okay. PCR testing, contact trade, um, you know, increased ventilation. All of those measures are, are things that can be taken um, by government and by individuals, but by government in the first instance mm-hmm. to, to improve our, our our capacity and our position okay. in, the, in the runs this winter. All right, got to leave there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, Sinn Féin's uh, Darren O'Rourke is a TD for Me the East and is party spokesperson on transport. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, it was a, a dream come uh, through nine years ago for Neve when she got the keys to her new apartment in Boys Court in uh, Drogheda. Neve, good morning to you. Hiya, Michael. Uh, it's not quite uh, the same dream now, is it? No, not really. I wouldn't say that now. Yeah, you're damp ridden. Tell us uh, about uh, the condition of your apartment. 
Well, the two bedrooms, one is covered in black mould. It has been since the day I moved in. Um, it was a small bit, and I did contact, I did actually go out and call builders that were still finishing some of the houses in to ask them what it was, because I'd, yeah. I'd never seen it. I was, I was only 19. <laughs> and this was in a brand new apartment when you first moved in? Yeah, it was on the corner of the wall. The wall is actually fully black now. Mm. Um, but they did say it was just condensation, just put on the radiators, open all the windows at the same time now. Right. And it will blow it out. So we've done that. I was actually kind of keeping it at bay for a few years, constantly cleaning with bleach every few days mm. um, and all that kind of stuff. But now it's it's just not manageable. It's everywhere. Yeah, it doesn't matter what you do with mould. It'll always come back, uh, I think, unless you get to the root of it. Uh, tell us how bad it is, uh, because uh, I think uh, you were saying to Maggie about uh, doing your washing, hanging your clothes in the wardrobe and uh, they don't uh, stay clean for very long. No, well, if you leave them there for more than uh, three days max, you'll have to wash everything before you wear it because it'll constantly smell like mould. Even hanging, like, the jumpers on the back of the door, um, the ceilings are black. Like, everywhere is just black. It's behind the wardrobe. I'd say the wardrobes are destroyed if I pulled them out, which the massive wardrobe was kind of hard. It's just you can't really leave anything anywhere. Mm, Yeah. Uh, And you're concerned as well about the health of your children yeah well like the two of the kids are in the same room now they have green mold it's completely different than the black mold everywhere else they have green so their ceiling's green their walls are green now it's quite manageable in their room because it's green not black Mm. but like in my bedroom i have the toddler and he's he's been at the doctor i don't he's been out of crash more times than he's been in He's been at the doctor and putting antibiotics plenty of times and it's always his chest or a cough or, you know, like he's complaining his headaches. Like he'll always hold his head and say, ow. So, like, more than likely that's from what it is. It seems to be a mystery and I don't think uh, you're alone in uh, the complaints uh, that you're making and there's concern about uh, the next phase of it uh, as well. What uh, has the council been saying to you? Well... Now, they actually kind of, they fogged me off for quite a few years, but I got Imelda Munster on my case there last year, and thank God for her, she got dehumidifiers put into both rooms. But then again, these dehumidifiers go outside, so they're just big holes in the wall. Mm. That's the only way I can explain them. So the rooms are constantly freezing. So they're they're not really usable. And then when you do have them on, the rooms are just, terribly cold and the kids are getting more sick right you know like especially now winter if you can hear everything that goes on everywhere you can it's just a tiny bit of wind mm. you can't sleep there's a breeze coming through them it's, it's yeah. crazy yeah, it's pretty so, cold out there so you've gone from the frying pan to the fire or from the fridge to the freezer as the case may be yeah it's just mm. it's, it just seems to be like I, I just can't explain it like we took I don't know if you saw the picture of the sitting room yeah yeah Dreadful. My couch, like you can't even have a couch, whereas if you pull it out, it's going to be black mould behind it. And then like the kitchen presses, if you left a bag of flour in it, you may, you won't, do you know, years ago you'd have a bag of flour that you'd have there years <laughs> um, if you don't bake. But you can't leave anything, you can't leave any powders in the press. They just congeal, do they? Um, yeah, they just yeah, yeah. go all green and yeah. horrible. Yeah, well, you can see it in the photographs that you sent to us, uh, but you are to be rehoused, are you? Well, hopefully. Um, I'm on the list 
five years because of uh, three children, like, yeah. um, and it's a two-bedroom. But it's not even, like, if it's this, I like it here. If it was even livable, it'd be fine. Mm. It wouldn't. Oh, I think wouldn't you'd mind. have been, when you got your keys, I think you'd have been the envy of many people nine years ago because they look like uh, lovely houses and apartments. So, yeah, see, yeah. The, like, they are, but mm. it's just the mould just gets you. Like, if this had been addressed the nine years ago when I first moved in, if... Like, I know for a fact, if they took some of the bricks out of the wall, replastered, put the proper sealant in it, it would be perfect. It's just, they just never did. And I've been trying and trying and it's, I don't. Well, look, I'm not sure if it'll make any difference calling us, uh, but thanks for highlighting it on the show with us this morning, Neve. And nice to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. That's uh, Neve, who's a resident in Boyce Court. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, a text uh, from somebody saying uh, there were record numbers at uh, the FA Cup final yesterday. The place was packed. Uh, Social distancing seems to be more or less gone. How can anyone take uh, the government seriously anymore, asks our caller. Uh, Liz has been in touch. Uh, Liz is in Drogheda. She says she was in three local restaurants in the course of the past week and another one in Dublin. And all of them didn't just ask for vaccine certs. They also wanted ID. Liz says this was very encouraging. You want to feel as safe as possible going into places. And she says they should be extended to hairdressers, beauty salons and so on. Uh, Thanks uh, for your call, Liz. Thanks to Billy and Trim, who has been on as well. And he says there's too much doom and gloom. Please, please, please cut it out. Everyone is out to blame each other on the virus and we shouldn't be doing this we don't why don't we start teaching children from a very young age to start wearing masks when they're toddlers uh, Billy says he, he feels that we're going to have to live with this virus for some time to come and he says he sees his own great grand nephews they were one and two and a half when this started now they have their masks with them all the time they're used to it just like children had to get used to wearing seatbelts God love uh, the poor children they need uh, a lot of understanding uh, in the current climate uh, says Billy and uh, thanks uh, for sharing those thoughts with us Uh, another call from Michelle who's in trim and she says I understand there's a a lot of concern about this new variant uh, but should we not just calm ourselves down a little bit until we know what it is that we're actually dealing with all of the coverage in the media is putting the fear of God into people thanks Michelle Uh, let's try and get some expert medical advice now Dr Amy Morgan is a GP at the Bryanstown Medical Practice and on the line and a very good morning to you Dr Morgan and thanks uh, for joining us once again on the programme this morning Uh, I take it there's some sense in what Michelle was saying there we don't know a lot about this uh, but uh, on one hand there's no need to panic but on the other hand uh, we need to be vigilant Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, um, you know, of how hard scientists are working globally at the moment to try and get a better picture of what's going on. But I mean, ultimately, for, for people going about their daily business today, I don't think they should be doing it. Um, you know, and I think obviously we need to, you know, keep a sense of calm, keep a sense of vigilance, as you said. It doesn't change how you should be doing things, you know, this morning. You should be obviously, you know, making yourself aware if you have symptoms, stay at home, ring, get a PCR test arranged. Um, you know, the basic things of hand hygiene and making sure that you're avoiding anywhere that you feel uncomfortable in terms of, you know, crowded places that are poorly ventilated. And then, like, you know, as your caller said, you know, feeling safe and secure when you are attending somewhere like a restaurant, you know, that you feel that, 
you know, the right procedures have been followed. So I think, yeah, I think we'll, we'll just have to see and wait. But, but ultimately, you know, I think we all need to maybe take a step back and, and, and let the people who are experts and who have our best interests at heart, you know, do the hard work and try and figure out what's going on. OK, well, you're just back uh, to work in the last few weeks, aren't you? And congratulations to you, by the way. I, I know you've oh, just yeah. uh, <laughs> returned to work from maternity leave. Uh, yes, and, that's uh, right, yeah. Uh, great time for you and your family, obviously. Uh, but it, yeah. it certainly was back into the deep end. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's interesting, you know, you're, you're, you're going off maternity leave and you're coming back and you're seeing what the differences were. Uh, and unfortunately, obviously, COVID is, is still here. Um, and, you know, it's obviously still representing a huge part of our workload in the practice. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's good to be back and, and we're certainly busy. Um, but, but yeah, you know, it's still very difficult times for people. So we, we understand that. And, mm. and, you know, thankfully, most of our patients are very patient with us and our staff, um, which is a huge help, you know, in terms of how we, how we are continuing to deliver care in the community to, to the people who need it the most. And it's been rife in Drogheda, uh, the worst corner of uh, the country. It's an odd situation because I think uh, whilst uh, Drogheda Urban was uh, in uh, the top three worst areas in uh, the country when they look at the uh, prevalence of uh, the disease across uh, the local areas, uh, you're talking about Dundalk Carlingford uh, being in one of the best three uh, lower incidence rate there. Uh, Why do you think Drogheda has been so bad? I'm not sure. And I, I think, you know, you get these numbers back and, and obviously they're they're monitoring the situation up and down the country and you, you get the stats in. But I mean, ultimately, I think every practice and every GP practice in every corner of the country is experiencing the same uptick in terms of people contacting the surgery, displaying symptoms. It is winter after all. Mm. Um, so, you know, people are, are mixing more, but they're mixing in situations. You know, it's not like they're all going out and having parties, but they're in a situation where they're indoors because of the colder weather. Um, and obviously we have other respiratory viruses that are circulating around. You know, you could argue as well that, you know, anywhere that there's an increased demand for PCR testing is, is a reflection of the fact that the population there are, are vigilant and, and trying to be diligent and, and getting themselves tested. So, I, I, you know, I think while these numbers come back, I think ultimately you'd have to say that, you know, COVID is, is very prevalent in, in every community in Ireland right I now suppose, based on the numbers that we're getting back on a daily basis from Netflix. I suppose it's a bit like Omicron. Uh, it's South Africa today. Uh, it's our backyard tomorrow. Uh, it's Drogheda today. It's Tipperary tomorrow and that sort of yeah. thing. Uh, and whether it's Omicron or the Delta variant or whichever variant of the virus is about, you don't want to get it and you need to take the steps to protect yourself. Uh, as someone who's just come back uh, from maternity leave, uh, can we ask you when you decided, Dr. Morgan, to get vaccinated or did you get vaccinated? I did, yes. Uh, and I've since had my booster as a healthcare worker, which I was very grateful to get. Um, I got vaccinated um, actually just before I went off maternity leave in, in the first I suppose, wave of healthcare work, uh, worker vaccinations were taking place. Um, okay. So I got vaccinated up in the Phoenix Park. So um, I was in the later stage of my pregnancy um, and at the evidence at that time was saying that, you know, um, it was emerging in terms of safety in, in pregnancy um, and I felt confident and happy knowing that colleagues of mine who were in the same position as myself had, you know, had gone on to get vaccinated. And to me, the, the, the decision was, you know, I was very happy. I wanted to protect myself as a healthcare worker and I wanted to protect um, my baby, um, you know, from, from you know, I suppose the ultimate fear at that stage was, that I was going to develop COVID myself, and, and I knew that what you know there were there were obviously serious outcomes for for pregnant women who had become infected with COVID at such a late stage in their pregnancy. So it was definitely a 
you know, a no-brainer on my part um, after discussion with my obstetrician and I was very, very relieved to actually get my, my first dose and I had to wait at that stage to get my second dose but that guidance has since changed since I've had my baby. Mm. So I had my second dose then after I had my baby um, and, and thankfully we were we were both well and, um, you know, everything everything went to plan. So, so yeah, I was I was very, very relieved. Um, yeah, I suppose I, it goes I without saying that as a, a yeah. GP, that was an informed decision and no doubt uh, you did inform yourself all the more uh, so than you ordinarily would uh, because uh, like any expecting mother, you'd have had concerns uh, for your baby. Uh, and that seems to be a, a problem with women in pregnancy that they're saying, I'll hold off until after the pregnancy. Yeah, I, I am actually encountering that in practice. Um, you know, when you do acquire, inquire about, you know, the vaccinations that a pregnant woman has received and there are currently three now that we're recommending to women. So it's very important that they attend for their flu vaccine because we're in the middle of flu season at the moment. Um, their booster, which is their pertussis uh, booster, and then um, which they would have routinely been advised to get long before COVID, of course. And now COVID vaccines as well. And, and you know, there is clear recommendations from the Royal College of Obstetrics, um, from our own College of General Practitioners and, and then overseas obstetric colleges as well that, you know, absolutely they are recommending COVID vaccine in, in pregnancy for women. Um, and yes, you know, I understand the concerns that, you know, a woman who's coming in, she's pregnant, she's naturally nervous. Um, you know, the, the, at the start of this, there was possibly some conflicting information and, and the evidence maybe just wasn't strong enough for, for some people to have the confidence um, to proceed with the decision to go ahead and get vaccinated. But, you know, we're, we're in tens of thousands now of pregnant women who've been vaccinated in the US, in Canada, in Europe, in the UK. Uh, you know, so this is, these are numbers that are being monitored and, and they have safely received the vaccine. And, and thankfully, we haven't seen, uh, you know, any adverse effects to date. But obviously, the situation has been monitored. But unfortunately, we do know what the serious outcomes of developing COVID infection, particularly in the later stage of your pregnancy, is. Uh, you know, and undeniably, you know, there are higher rates of ICU admissions for pregnant women who contract COVID in the later stage of their pregnancy. So that's a that's a pregnant woman who's expecting to have a healthy baby and go home that is, you know, unfortunately ending up in an ICU bed and separated from her for her, from her baby. Uh, you know, and that's ultimately what we want to prevent. We want to prevent, you know, the severe effect of COVID infection for women who are pregnant. And we know that even if you're healthy and even if you're well, your your the fact that you're pregnant in a, in of itself, you know, does place you at higher risk of, of becoming infected. So I think, like you said, that, that mm. situation of I'll wait and see and I'll wait until I've had my baby. Unfortunately, some women have made those decisions and unfortunately they have ended up becoming quite sick. Um, so, you know, obviously there was a situation in, in the north of Ireland where, you know, uh, a lady was in exactly that same situation. In Derry, yes. Mm. And, and mm. you know, that's, that's just truly awful. Yeah. And as doctors, we, we mm. absolutely want people to be empowered to make their own decisions, but we do have to advise them of what the serious consequences yeah. of COVID infection are. And I think, you know, as you pointed out, COVID levels are so high in our community right now that it's very, very hard to yeah. avoid. That um, child, that child will grow up without a, a, its mother uh, and its mother uh, didn't believe in the vaccine as I understand it uh, and uh, the father would have had the same opinion uh, and at uh, the mother's funeral the father appealed to all women uh, in pregnancy to get vaccinated and to a large degree the facts speak for themselves in terms of ICU. Nobody likes the idea of going into ICU especially uh, if you're pregnant or if you've just given birth and of 
all of the women who were in ICU last year, not one of them was vaccinated or fully vaccinated. I think if I remember correctly, it was 37 or 38 women uh, who were in ICU uh, uh, who were either pregnant or after pregnancy, after giving birth, uh, and just one of them had been partially vaccinated. Yeah, and I think when you, when you break down the demographics in that as well, I, I think, you know, in the medical profession as well, we have to acknowledge that, you know, we have to do better. We have to, you know, make sure that we have a consensus on this, that people feel that they can trust us, they have confidence in us to all sing from the same hymn sheet and that we're reaching people who we know are more vulnerable. And we do know that women from, you know, a, you know, a minority group, let's just say, who are black or who are Asian communities who, you know, who may... They are at higher risk themselves, and um, women who are over thirty-five, which is actually a lot of women who are pregnant. Um, you know, uh, so you know there are additional risk factors, and and I think as well there are different communities out there living in Ireland who are possibly maybe getting their information, their health information from a variety of sources, and you know we can't underestimate the effect of family and friends have. You know, at this point in time as well, you know a lot of women would say, well, I have been looking up things, but you know a friend said this to me, or you know. My, you know, a partner said this to me. So, you know, those conversations that you're having with a pregnant woman, you know, particularly at home and communities and work situations, they're very influential, you know. Mm. So I think we, we really all have to make sure that we endorse the positives as well. You know, this is a positive thing. Obviously, none of us would like to be, li- we'd like to be living without COVID at the moment, but it is an unfortunate reality that we do have to, you know, we have to get on with this. And, mm. and I think by taking the vaccination, by impairing yourself, making sure you have all the information after a conversation with your GP or obstetrician, it's one less thing for you to worry about. You're protecting yourself and you're protecting your baby and that's the most important thing. Um, For people who've got the Janssen vaccine, particularly in the 50 to 60 year old cohort, um, should they be concerned, people uh, in particular who got it, let's say last April, uh, because many people in Drogheda where you are, uh, would have got it uh, because there was uh, some sort of glitch in the system which meant that they didn't get the AstraZeneca vaccines that they were due to get and then everybody uh, was sent off uh, for the Janssen vaccine. But it, it seems uh, from the Centre for Disease Control in America that there's little confidence that there's any protection after two months and could that be feeding into the high figures in the Drogheda area, do you think? Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure, to be honest with you. Um, they have made recommendations that specifically the Janssen vaccine, if it's three months since your last dose, that they would be looking to see whether you are eligible for, for a COVID booster um, vaccine. So mm. as opposed to the, the six months from from the mRNA vaccination uh, from those who receive those type of vaccines. So, yeah, I mean, it's there. But at the same time, it's not that, you know, you, you go from having some protection to no protection. It's not a drastic drop off. And I think, you know, once you're coupling that with all the other, you know, health safety behaviours in terms of that we talked about at the start, um, you know, in terms of avoiding kind of crowded situations, Mm. knowing what to do if you have symptoms. So I think, you know, we we are talking about the vaccines a lot and they're important, but they're one part of the strategy in terms of preventing COVID infection. I think we have to be cognizant of that. Okay. All right. Good to talk to you and congratulations to you once again and uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, That's uh, Dr. Amy Morgan, who's a GP at uh, the Bryanstown Medical Practice in Drogheda. Michael Reed on LMFM. There is confusion in Drogheda. Some pedestrians are wondering why cars are failing to stop at pedestrian crossings. Some motorists are wondering why some pedestrians are just walking straight out in front of cars. 
Are they pedestrian crossings or are they speed ramps? And this is what's at the heart of uh, the confusion. We're joined by P.O. Smith, who's a local councillor for the Labour Party and independent councillor Kevin Callan. Good morning to both of you and thanks indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, P.O. Smith, uh, there is some confusion. That sounds dangerous. Well, good morning, Michael. Yeah, I suppose there is some confusion, OK. <clears throat> I mean, they're called courtesy crossings and uh, they basically allow the pedestrian to have some type of you know, the degree of control or priority over drivers. And they're not pedestrian crossings, but they are put, they are designed according to the design manual for open roads and streets. <clears throat> so they're fully in compliance in regards to government guidelines. I think the confusion arises in regards to uh, the, the rules of the road, so to speak. So pedestrians will always have priority. That's just the way it is. And drivers need to be aware of that fact. So that for example, if you're driving up King Street and you're approaching where one of these crossings are, we have to be as drivers cognizant of the fact that if a child or an adult starts to actually cross the road, uh, you know, we must be going at a speed that allows us to be able to stop and give them priority. OK, uh, but do you think that people know that? Well, I, uh, I think that people should know it, particularly drivers should know it. But I think that, that, you know, there has to be a degree of personal responsibility here as well. It's not just a matter of running out and walking out. There was a lot of consultation done with the schools in this regard, and, and, and there was meetings carried out. I think Councillor James Bourne actually carried out a number of meetings with the school along with the engineers before mm-hmm. they were actually installed. And so there was consultation, number one. And then number two, there has been feedback from the schools to the engineers and the council department, uh, sorry, in, uh, in, the, in, in the council, in regards to the outcomes. And it's very, very positive because children now are crossing at particular points where these uh, 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 courtesy crossings right. are installed. So, so what, what? What are they? What are they? Pedestrian crossings? No, they're not. They're not pedestrian crossings that you see with the lights. Yeah, uh, they're not them. No, but they are a kind of a. They are more. They are a lesser down uh, uh, version of that, if you like. You know. Right. Uh, and the mainly used like in, in low speed environments, you know, where yeah. form across. But the pedestrian, the pedestrian has the right of way. Pedestrian has well, the pedestrian has the right of way in the roads, anyway. You know. Yeah. Um, well, I'm not sure everybody knows that. I think uh, people don't expect people to walk out in front of them. No, well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't walk out in front of any driver to be no. honest with you. But, but you'd I mean, be more inclined to do so at pedestrian crossing because I think everybody would feel that as soon as a foot touches the ground, uh, the cars have to stop. Yeah, you would. And I mean, there is a pedestrian crossing, for example, at Sunday's Gate School. Uh, but because of the fact that that is such a busy junction, and you know, we do have a problem with speeding in, in Drada, and I suppose every other town around the country, mm. particularly where there's a straight stretch of road. Uh, Scarlet Street, for example, is can be, and there has been one or two fatalities in Scarlet Street mm, down mm. through the years with speeding. Mm. So the whole idea is to slow traffic down, number one. Mm. Number two is to provide some type of uh, autonomy for pedestrians and bring awareness to drivers of the fact that, you know, at these points, people will be crossing. OK. Kevin Callan, uh, do you think they're a good idea? Because they will slow drivers down because they're quite big speed ramps. The speed ramps come and go. Uh, but do you think that motorists in general know that they're meant to stop if somebody walks out in front of them? No, Michael. I, I think that is a problem. And I think a number of councillors raised this last month at the, at the monthly borough meeting. The problem is, at the top of the likes of Peter Street, you have one of these courtesy crossings. 
and at the bottom you have a, a marked pedestrian crossing. And people get confused by that, pedestrians and motorists. So at the minute, confusion around road safety is never a good thing. So these ramps, people do not understand who has right of way. Um, engineers may know and council officials may know and people in the department may know, but your, your average Joe Bloggs who's crossing the street is not clear. And if they cross the street at the bottom, at the Tolsell, at the bottom of Peter Street, and they have right of way, and then they come up the street and cross again, they're unaware of the difference. They may not be thinking about it, they may be looking at a phone, they may not be paying attention. So they are they are causing problems and confusion. And I know the engineers said at the last meeting that it would be important for them to get time to bed in, for people to get used to them. But at any time, somebody could come through Drogheda who's never been through Drogheda before and have absolutely no idea what these are about. Mm. And they're causing problems at Lawrence's Gate there at the start of the Cord Road. There's a hesitancy there on people coming up the hill, as it is. There was always a hesitancy. That was always supposed to be a pedestrian crossing. What's there now doesn't fit the bill. At Sunday's Gate, the ramp on the Hardman's Garden side is too tight to the junction. And I've raised it with engineers that the tall vehicles, heavy vehicles going around that corner are tilting as they go around the corner. And the sign to alert them of a ramp is literally on the ramp. Mm. There's no time to even see ha- Has the council done anything to educate people? Not that I'm aware of, Michael. Okay, I, I which I think is very curious because we asked them to explain it to us uh, last Friday and they haven't responded as yet. Which I think is very, I think is very remiss of them uh, to put things in, uh, be told there's confusion, and not have anything to say, let alone yeah. be proactive in this. Yeah, no, I totally agree, and it's something I've asked them in terms of public awareness, what they're looking to do to promote what they what they put in place. It, it, there's nothing there at all, not even beside the ramps. Is there anything mm. to say, this is a courtesy ramp? As P.O. said, the purpose of it is this. There's nothing. You just stick these red strips in across the town. And again, around the schools, at Scalingus, you know, in terms of children, I would have a concern where you have a pedestrian crossing side by side with one of these. If somebody's not paying attention and they step off from a pedestrian crossing onto one of these, they are not aware or they may not be aware of what the difference is. Mm. And a motorist may come around those corner and you know, the, the effect will speak for themselves. Pio Smith, uh, what about uh, the thing? I don't know what to call it, uh, except for uh, the painted road surface at the bottom of Francis Street. Uh, as you come up the top of Constitution Hill, uh, you're navigating a, a fairly complicated junction, uh, watching to see that uh, people will stop if they're coming from your right, uh, you're going forward, uh, and there's a painted piece of road. There is no ramp. The ramps will slow people down, but this is just uh, a red... Uh, painted stretch of road with some white lines looks very, very like a uh, pedestrian crossing to pedestrians uh, and is obscured from vision if motorists are coming up the hill. Yeah, I, I'm, like Kevin's right. I mean, the original proposal there was for uh, a pedestrian crossing uh, because of the complexity of that junction as well and, and the, uh, the sight lines. And my understanding was that a report from Garda Chicane a couple of years ago actually recommended that a pedestrian cross be put into the bottom of Francis Street uh, and the junction of Cod Road. Uh, so, but they put this thing in that's just confusing everybody. There's people walking out in front uh, on that, and cars coming up, and nobody knows who has the right of way. Yeah, well, I, you know, I go back again. I mean, the, the junction itself, the the the, the right of way as such is uh, coming up Constitution Hill and stopping that uh, cord road and allowing for that traffic. But the problem is the pedestrian crossing there just at McHugh's pub. 
and who is the right of way there? And mm. my and understanding I think that, again is, I think that right of way has changed. The cars go straight now; they've right away, and uh, there's a stop sign. And by the way, the council failed to put any notice of that in, and that caused problems as well. There was no new traffic layout signage or anything like that. They just changed the direction of the stop sign and left people to fight it out amongst themselves. Yeah, well, you know, the the, the original. Going back a couple of years ago, there was there was a lot of problems, a lot of complaints coming in from people uh, who were saying <clears throat> that drivers were driving up Constitution Hill and going ignoring the stop sign and going straight through. Yeah. And then there was a proposal to change it back and, and put the stop sign on the card road uh, section yeah. of it. Uh, but again, it, it goes back to the the, the point that uh, and by the way, there was there was a significant amount of money allocated to change all of this and put uh, uh, road God. road signs yeah. and 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 uh, mm-hmm. road markings on there. Yeah. And uh, if that hasn't been done, then that that needs to be addressed at the December meeting as to why it wasn't done. But Kevin's right. I mean, mm-hmm. we need to get some clarity in regards to that crossing point there because I, I use it myself on a number of mm-hmm. occasions. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, with cars yeah. coming up that Constitution Hill, as you say, you do you do take a your life in a hand yeah. at times. Well, they have the right of way now. I'm not sure if I confused that. The stop sign is on the cord road, but there wasn't uh, uh, any signs to indicate that the flow of traffic had changed uh, and people had to fight it out for themselves. That's what I, I meant by that. Uh, Kevin mm. Callan, uh, are you concerned about that thing, as I called it? A uh, bit of paint on the road. It, it's hardly what people would recognise uh, as something that's given instruction to right of way. No, Michael, I totally agree with you. Um, and the, the, as I said before, the problem here is at, at the start of the Cord Road, at the top of Constitution Hill, that's an area where there is no time for hesitation if you're a motorist or a pedestrian. The traffic can be on top of you very, very quickly. So what is there at the minute, to me, is a cheap slapstick version of what should be there, which is a proper pedestrian crossing, which is what was always supposed to be there. Um, and the same applies um, around Skolingasa, the same applies at Sunday's Gate and on Peter Street. But they're not what they look like, if I put it that way. And pedestrians who see a raised, coloured marking, marking area for them to cross the road, they think that is a pedestrian crossing. Mm. And you'd have thought that the ramp uh, at that Sunday's gate junction, you'd have thought that the ramp would have been on Patrick Street because that's where all of the accidents over the years have been from people going through from Patrick Street yeah. not knowing that they didn't have the right of way. And the, the bizarre thing in this is that the ramp is actually sitting on the junction. So mm. That actually to me, presents a risk. And I've asked the council to get engineers to look at that again. That ramp should be moved, as you say, to Patrick Street or it should be moved further towards Scarlet Street, as Pio said, where there are already traffic issues. Mm. Um, that was slow traffic, but where it is at the minute, it's making pedestrians step off the footpath on a junction when the, tra- when the traffic will already be coming up onto that ramp. And to me, that, that defies all logic. And we've, for years, we've been calling for traffic calming in the likes of um, Congress Avenue, the likes of Marion Park, where we're told there's no funding. But these all appear overnight throughout the town centre area. And to me, they've just caused confusion. And I think Peel's right, in December at the, at the council meeting, we're going to have to go again and seek the council to confirm what they're going to do to make mm. this right with the public. And if they're not going to make it right, start getting funding for pedestrian crossings at, that, at those locations. Yeah, well, it has caused confusion. I know some people have said to me, my head's wrecked trying to drive around that town. Uh, yeah. And uh, they're also concerned as well uh, that they'll hit somebody or be hit, uh, depending on whether they're driving or walking. Listen, we leave it there for the moment and thank you both for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, that's uh, local councillors in Drogheda Independent, Kevin Callan and Labour's Pio Smith. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you know, 27 people unfortunately got into a small dinghy last week and it ended up in their watery grave in the English Channel. Let's speak uh, to John Lannan, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Duras. Duras is an independent, non-governmental organisation working to promote and protect the rights of migrants in Ireland. Good morning to you, John, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. And you'd like to hear from the Irish government in relation to this and that the Irish government would use its influence over other countries and call for safe routes of passage for people who are seeking asylum. Yes, indeed. And good morning. It was devastating to hear the news that 27 men, women and children had tragically lost their lives mm. while trying to, to cross to safety in Britain and the, the response was talk about sea patrols and offshore detention of refugees and putting troops in French beaches. And, you know, we, we, we should be better than that here in, in Europe, we, we feel. And we're, we're asking the Irish government to voice their opposition to this sort of response. No one should ever feel that their only option for, for their future is to cross the world's biggest shipping route in a, in, in a dinghy. You know, mm. people don't make these choices easily um, and it's the worst the tragedy ever but they weren't the first people to die uh, and they'd have known to some extent the risks imagine knowing the risks of getting into a, a little dinghy on such a big stretch of water uh, I mean you really must be desperate absolutely um, and this is the case you know as you said they're not the only deaths and unfortunately we've had thousands of deaths in the Mediterranean Sea, people trying to cross to safety in Europe. We've even had deaths on the um, Belarus-Polish um, border as well, with people being pushed back there. There's desperation. There are situations in the world where countries and communities are devastated by war, by conflict, by oppression. And pe- people are taking desperate measures to, to try to um, reach safety and, and we need to be able to find a fairer, more compassionate and more effective set of solutions for for, for what's happening in the world and in, in Europe today um, and, and we believe that the only way to save lives in these dangerous routes is to stop people from believing that these journeys are the only way to be able to um, have their application for protection and asylum heard whether it's in the UK or in France or anywhere else and safe pathways or routes need to be provided for people to be able to get to safety and protection. To provide a, a different option? Indeed, yeah. And, and there are a range of options available. You know, there, there are programmes um, that we have some experience of here in Ireland as well, including refugee resettlement, family reunification. And also, um, it is possible to have complementary pathways that provide opportunities for refugees to enter and settle in a country, like, for example, through labour mobility or education programmes or, or other schemes. Um, and, you know, we, we find that nowadays, you know, the countries bearing most responsibility for refugee protection have been those that are probably least equipped to do that. Countries like Lebanon, Jordan, mm. Uganda, you know, they're homes to, to millions of refugees. So. Mm. Europe can and must do more and, and, and be more be more compassionate and ensure that, um, you know, the, the people that are seeking asylum um, who have no other options but to make dangerous, irregular journeys, they are recognised under the 1951 Refugee Convention. They need to be treated fairly and humanely by being granted a fair hearing um, on, on the country that they wish to seek. 
protection mm. and asylum in. Yeah, um, the French, Dutch and uh, Belgian ministers uh, have been meeting in Calais uh, and they've been looking at uh, some of uh, the uh, issues or steps that uh, you've been speaking about. But they've also been looking at uh, those uh, who charge people to get into these little dinghies, uh, the people smugglers. In, indeed, and, and again, you know, the, the desperation that, that people face um, trying to survive and trying to keep their children alive in, in many cases leads them to make decisions that include handing over huge amounts of money to, to people smugglers. Um, but if, if governments want to stop people smugglers, you know, they have to create safe routes. They have to remove their, their trade. It is a difficult, challenging, complex area but there are solutions that can be put in place and and you know as long as the desperation exists and people are fleeing from persecution and torture and war and and are being resisted and are being blocked and are being met by police violence across europe then they will resort to these desperate measures Mm. Uh, we haven't uh, been too doing too well at it uh, so far, have we? Uh, I mean, you've been working uh, in uh, this area for the last 20 years, uh, I think, John, since uh, the establishment of uh, direct provision in this country. That in itself has been a very questionable way of uh, dealing with people because of uh, our failure to deal with them and people being left in, in the system for so long. There's a, an attitude uh, or, or a suspicion in terms of dealing with people, I think. Absolutely, yes. And and we, we've heard, you know, talk in Ireland as, as well as talk in the UK and elsewhere about pull factors to this country. Well, people seeking protection are not choosing from a menu of countries that they, they'd like to come to. They're fleeing to wherever they can in order to get sanctuary and protection. And as you say, we've been very deficient in this country as well. Direct provision was set up as a temporary measure 21 years ago, we still have people spending years languishing in centres that are unfit for purpose. We've children growing up in direct provision systems and and centres, their formative years are being damaged, very damaged by the isolation from the rest of society. We've people who've been unable to access education or or work. We've people who have been... um, affected um, very badly from from a mental health point of view, mm. bearing in mind that many people are already coming, having faced persecution, having faced torture of a physical or psychological nature. We, we really must do better here as well and end the direct provision system and provide a more humane basis for people seeking international protection in Ireland. Yeah, and you think of the people uh, who got onto that dinghy. It was one of the last things uh, they did. Uh, one of them was a, a pregnant woman, uh, somebody expecting uh, a child. Uh, it's, I think anyway, at least uh, it was difficult not uh, to draw comparisons with the OMA bombing. Uh, but it's the scale of death and disaster and tragedy. Uh, you can't imagine for a second that any of them were economic migrants. No, indeed. These are all, you know, men and and women and and with with children as well who've made heartbreaking decisions you know they've left everything they know behind and they've done that to flee war to flee persecution to to flee violence they've experienced you know untold trauma in their own countries they've experienced it en route you know through through europe and in their final desperate efforts to to get to the uk in in this case they 
they, they lost their lives. And, and it's a tragedy, you know, that, that shouldn't be happening in Europe. It's happening all too often, as we've said, around the borders of Europe now. You, you tr- you, Europe is fortifying itself to stop people from entering the country, people who are fleeing from wars that, that we're often, you know, to, to some degree pl- complicit in, in the, um, in as well. And while trade can continue to happen, while business happens with the rest of the world, people fleeing from these wars and from conflict and persecution are being blocked from entering Europe, even though we have obligations under the 1951 Geneva Convention. Okay, John, we leave it there for the moment. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, Pleasure to speak to you. That's uh, John Lannan, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Duras. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Special needs uh, assistants are campaigning uh, for respect uh, to be an SNA. You need uh, three Ds in uh, your intercert, as it would have been in 1979 when uh, the scheme was uh, first established. Let's talk uh, to Carl McSherry, who's the campaign officer for SNAs in North Leinster for the Forza Trade Union. A very good morning to you, Carol, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, morning, Michael. How are you? Tell us about hashtag respect for SNAs. Well, it's basically a campaign that was started by Forza, but it is very grassroots as well, because um, SNAs have adjusted and adapted to modern challenges, but we feel the department is not reflecting that. Um, they are saying, they're stating that we only need three Ds in the junior cert um, to become an SNA. But the reality is people go off and do courses and then when they look on educationpost.ie um, all the principals, and rightly so, are looking for a level, FETAC level 5, 6, 7, 8, you know, and um, that's what we have to have and that's what we're getting and the department doesn't acknowledge it. Right. Uh, are there any SNAs who got three Ds in their inter, as the case may have been? There are because there are SNAs that are SNAs maybe two, three decades. I mean, to do your junior cert 30 years ago was a good achievement. Uh, you know, education has moved on a bit. Those SNAs have, you know, great experience. But I think we did a survey. It's only about 3% of SNAs um, have gotten to that stage. Um, mm. And then the rest of us have more qualifications. And as well, we're asking for this um, to happen to new SNAs, you know, as they come in. That's, uh, so SNAs that are currently working don't need to worry about it. Right. Why? Why do you want respect? Well, um, why, why, why do you achieve respect? Uh, is that not disrespectful to people who are not as well educated as yourself? Or, no, or, or, so. or is it a claim for higher pay levels? No, not at the moment it's not. No, it, it's um, basically that, you know, we are doing the work. We do continue, continuous professional development and uh, it's not acknowledged. It's acknowledged by teachers, but it's not by ourselves. We, you know, it's a very complex role now. We should do things like peg feeding, mm. uh, check for diabetes, epilepsy, hoisting. If a child has an emotional or behavioural breakdown or meltdown, we have to know how to deal with this. And we're all going and doing courses, and um, it's not acknowledged by the department. Mm. And you don't believe uh, that somebody who has three Ds in their junior cert is capable of it, or, or what? Is, I'm just failing to understand. No, no, I just said earlier um, mm. if they have, you know, 20, 30 years of experience, mm. that's mm. worth more than anything. We're talking about new entrants. For mm. any job, you need a certain amount of qualification. And it's not that we're asking for new qualifications. We're getting these qualifications mm. ourselves. 
We just want them acknowledged. At the moment, in UCD, the department is running a course and um, they will not accredit it. UCD want to accredit it, but the department won't. Okay. Uh, Would it result in better pay if your qualifications were acknowledged or if they were necessary to take up uh, the role of an SNA? It might in the long term, but I think it would affect everything. You know, we work in a school, we work as a team, and we need need our professionalism to be acknowledged. Mm. But that is the idea behind us. Okay. You know, yeah. Okay, very good. All right, Carol, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, That's uh, Carol McSherry, Campaign Officer for SNAs in North Leinster for the Force of Trade Union. Now, uh, before we finish up today, let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us. Bernie in touch with us about speed ramps, and she says, it is kind of a pedestrian crossing. What kind of nonsense is that? It is either a pedestrian crossing or it is not. I'm an old lady and I want to know if it is or if it is not. Is it safe or is it not? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know what to say to you, uh, Bernie, but uh, thanks for asking. Uh, I suppose that's uh, why we asked the council uh, if uh, they could give us some information on what it is uh, that they've done. Uh, thanks uh, for that. Patton Balbriggan, thanks uh, for your text to the programme about the same thing. He says, regarding those crossings in Drogheda, does the powers that be want to get rid of cars off the road altogether? The price of fuel, new electric cars in general, running of cars. Now people are allowed to walk out in front of cars. Your speaker said that pedestrians have the right of way over drivers. What a load of rubbish on the continent. People stop at crosses until the driver stops before entry onto the road. And uh, another Irish cock-up. Uh, thanks uh, indeed, uh, Pat, for that. Uh, Mag Y in touch saying pedestrian crossings should be black-white, black-white and two flashing yellow lights. Simple. Thank you, uh, Mag Y. Uh, but we aren't talking about pedestrian crossings. I'm not sure what we're talking about. We're talking about a thing at the bottom of Francis Street because it doesn't have a speed ramp. Otherwise, there's speed ramps that are painted red with white lines. Uh, in Trim, Anne says, there's three crossings together at the post office and credit union to close together. You would be rear-ended very easily. Uh, she says she was nearly knocked down on one in Market Street and uh, there was one uh, in the middle of it and the driver just waved at me. Uh, thanks. Uh, she was uh, on the middle of the crossing and the driver just waved at her. Thank you uh, indeed uh, for that. Uh, a lot of people have thoughts about this. Shirley texting us saying, it's known as Ramp City in Drogheda, but they do need them at the entrance to Ballsgrove and uh, the BD entrance uh, because of the two schools in the area. Uh, thank you indeed, uh, uh, Shirley, for your message uh, to the programme as well. Uh, as I say, a lot of people are uh, very interested in those ramps uh, or whatever it is uh, that uh, they are. Hopefully we'll hear from the council at some stage. Maybe we can come back to you with uh, their response if we do get one uh, on tomorrow's programme. Uh, before we leave today, uh, we'll talk about vaccine or people's hesitancy to get vaccinated. Vaccine hesitancy has become a major issue and it's so much based on trust. Sometimes it's a lack of trust in general in government messages. Sometimes it's a lack of trust in science. Um, Sometimes it's because of misinformation. And there are genuine situations where people are hesitant uh, to have vaccination because they don't feel they have the right information. It's difficult enough in a situation like this to make complex decisions around your health or the health of your loved ones. It's all the more difficult to make that decision when your choice 
is being actively interfered with by misinformation. Uh, and that can be deadly. There is uh, words of expertise from Dr. Mike Ryan, Executive Director of uh, the World Health Organization. That finishes our programme for today. And God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.